Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. As regular listeners know, Below the Line covers the Oscars by hosting film industry professionals to discuss the nominees in their category of expertise. Today is episode 8 of 10, and we've reassembled our go-to music team to talk about original score. Mick Coogan, LA-based composer, singer, and songwriter. Welcome back. Hey, what's up, Skid? Louis Weeks, LA-based score composer. Nice to see you again. Hey, Skid. And Chris Malamphy, chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the Slate podcast, Hit Parade. Welcome. Thanks so much, Skid. Let's dive right in. The five films nominated for original score are Don't Look Up, Dune, Encanto, Parallel Mothers, and The Power of the Dog. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. First on our list is Don't Look Up, score composed by Nicholas Brittell. you just played um, what I think is the the kind of core musical idea of this film. Um, it's it's the kind of the germ that everything thematically kind of springs from. Although, you know, I don't think that this uh, score is a particularly thematic one. It, it really does jump all over and that kind of gets to um, some things that I found kind of confusing about the movie from a structural perspective. You know, the Nicholas Patel is uh, becoming one of the biggest names. I mean, I think the his work on the theme to Succession and uh, is, you know, pretty much um, just as much a phenomenon as the show is in the musical world. I see that as a reference literally everywhere I look in my industry. It is one of the go-to pieces of music that everyone in the film and advertising world points to when they want something that's sophisticated and um, smart with a little bit of edge to it. So I think that we're right in Nicholas Bertel's wheelhouse where like the music that he writes is very smart. That theme that you just played has a lot of really interesting stuff working for it. You know, I when I hear that piece of music, um, it, it kind of reminds me of like his take on, um, so excuse me, Nino Rota, kind of Fellini thing. This kind of uh, interpretation of this movie is kind of like a Fellini farce, kind of a, a madcap uh, apocalyptic romp, um, which musically kind of the, the, the band and, and the intersection between the swing and the kind of orchestral stuff and the kind of very theatrical musical styles. I think it's very effective uh, in, in this movie. There's other parts of the score where it confirmed what I thought going into this, which this movie, which was like, maybe this should have been a three or four part series, not a really super long film. I thought the film was like 30 minutes too long. 
And I thought this could probably have been a mini series. And the music feels kind of mini series ish in the way that there's a lot of variety. Nicholas Patel is very fluent in writing a lot of different styles. And just like this song, Just Look Up, the Ariana Grande song that's featured in this movie, it kind of, it, it assumes the fictional universe of the movie. There's a lot of music that Nicholas Patel writes that's within the world of the movie. So like he does a really convincing uh, tech ad um, at the beginning of the convention with Mark Rylance, where it's like, oh, if you're in, in advertising, you know exactly what music you should be writing for big tech or, or what type of music happens at the beginning of a convention like this one. So he, he is treating the world very literally and very seriously. I consider that to be kind of like a, that's how I would approach it if I was doing a series. It's less like a feature film in that it's, uh, it's not very cohesive thematically. And there's not a lot of like building off of thematic ideas the way that you might have in like a John Williams score. So I personally kind of liked the music. I thought it was a really interesting like swing. Like he, he, he had a perspective, he had a point of view. It reminded me, it connected me with some genres of filmmaking and uh, music history that I thought were appropriate. Like the uh, Nino Rota Fellini reference that I made earlier, it placed it within a, a genre um, for me. And so I felt like that was effective and it was a thoughtful way of, of approaching the, the film. Louis, you bring a good point. Um when I was listening, watching the movie and listening to the score afterwards, it does vary uh, in style and, and kind of um, instrumentation from electronic stuff to the swing stuff. And I wonder just hearing you speak, um, if that's not maybe a comment on kind of the, the nature of the film itself, which is so like turbo pop culture, where you have this like kind of third eye on the, the manic, stupidity of instant you know pop culture with you know with the, with the ariana and kid cuddy tune being such a kind of like a dark comedic nudge um i feel like maybe having this kind of wide swath of of styles was maybe a commentary on on that part of, on, a, on that part of society which uh the, the, the movie does see how everything gets kind of we get caught up in and just the uh the, the media the everybody's own kind of like choose your own adventure so I, I feel like um maybe it was a commentary on that i thought the i thought the swing parts were cool i uh this one to me the score stood out the, the least to me and was the least memorable i believe from these just watching the movie as a fan like uh, there wasn't there wasn't a melody that stuck out stuck out to me immediately maybe because of the variety but um i think it's interesting like you're saying that there's that he is nodding to these i don't know fellini and i, I didn't pick that up but i have to check that out that sounds pretty cool well i think that you might be onto something there one of the things that i think was really divisive about this film just as an experience was i perceived the way that audiences felt about the presence of a kind of editorial voice or like a, a writerly hand that was maybe judging the experience and, and judging the audience by extension. Um, you know, I think a lot of people walked away from that 
film feeling like it was heavy handed. And a lot of the heavy handedness I sensed might come from the idea that like, oh, you can feel the writers, like you could feel the writers writing it. You know, uh, it, it's certainly not a naturalistic story. It's very heightened and it's very, um, and, and you can kind of feel a kind of editorial judgment that looms over the whole piece. And in a way, like maybe having a musically having the kind of succession theme style, like themat strong thematic omnipresence musically would have felt the same way. And so maybe having music that jumps all around is a way of taking you out of that feeling of, of there's someone over the story watching us and judging us. And maybe the, the type of musical variety helps you into a kind of like more experiential way of viewing it rather than self-critical. I, I don't, maybe that's too meta, but I, you know, I, I think that the feeling of the movie, I think a lot of people were split on like, how do we feel about how we're supposed to feel about this movie? Like, what is the movie telling us? <laughs> what is the, how is the movie judging us for watching this movie? You know, and um, the musically like, make you make a good point like there's lots of ways that um a consistent musical theme hovering over the film might feel just like a writer's hand hovering over the film i agree with a lot of what you guys have been saying it's interesting if i were to make an analogy thinking about their our conversation a year ago at this time when we were doing best score a year ago we had uh, competing projects by trent reznor and atticus rost um we're about to talk about another rock star turned score uh, expert in a, f in a few selections. But uh, last year, the superstar of the category was, uh, was Trent and Atticus of Nine Inch Nails. And one thing we were saying in one of their scores, which was nominated but did not win for Mank, was that it showed this versatility and this uh, ability to write in a completely different sort of um, Bernard Herman-esque kind of idiom. And similarly, this is, to me, Brattel showing off sort of his versatility within the same score. I mean, there's variety within the score itself. Um, it's uh, it's a little peripatetic, which cuts both ways. I'd say I like the score better than I like the movie personally. And as for sort of the meta analysis, I mean, Bertel has been nominated before. What's so interesting to me about Bertel is that he, uh, you know, to your point, Louis, the guy works with a variety of different people. This is his third time, I think, working with Adam McKay, uh, they worked together on The Big Short and Vice, both of Adam McKay's sort of satirical, semi-comedic, um, you know, Best Picture nominees. I think this is their third film collaboration. I think that there's other there's other stuff that they've done together uh, in the kind of uh, audio documentary space. That, ah. But but they're they're you know, I think that they're starting to to your point they're becoming a filmmaker pair the same way that you have Spielberg and Williams and Paul Thomas Anderson and Johnny Greenwood. And it's that type of pair that, that um, you know, they're kind of a binary star at this point. Totally. I mean, they, if, if that's one pairing with uh, Bertel, he must be a wonderful guy to work with because people seem to keep coming back to him. Barry Jenkins has come back to him multiple times. Moonlight, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, the Underground Railroad, they've worked together multiple times. So I think folks just like working with Bertel, he's very versatile. Obviously that succession theme, which has become, dare I use this overused word, iconic, mm -hmm. um, shows that the guy's got talent to burn. I think this is only his third time getting nominated. So I guess the question folks are gonna be asking is, is this the moment to 
uh, give him the big prize. And given the heavy competition he's got in this category, I suspect that may be a tough call this year. But um, Bertel's going to win this prize one one year eventually. I think that's that's got to be a lock. Yeah, you know, I think that um, he does some stuff that that I think traditionalists might turn their nose up at though you know he he is what he's very successful at is the kind of romantic traditional thematic writing like if you think of the theme to succession it kind of feels like a like a kind of a distillation of a Rachmaninoff or a Prokofiev piece there's something very like classic about it but then he puts this really cool backbeat underneath it and I think that Almost a trap beat. Yeah, there's it's there's something there's something old school and very New York about it, which is what I think works about in succession. It's it, to me, it sounds like a a New York hip hop sound. Totally. But it's like a Britney beat. Yeah, exactly. It's it's those little things, and he he does it with electronics in the, uh, "Don't Look Up." He he has this really clever and inventive way of kind of subverting. Um, a traditionalist take that um, I think to me is what makes him so special, but it also might be the thing that stops him from getting his uh, acclaim when he's due because it's those little things that people might be like, Oh, that doesn't sound like a movie. You know Um, Mm. I think that he's, I think that he's out, he's fluent enough in what he does and, um, and and in, he's just successful enough musically that I think that he will get uh, rewarded for his for his talent. But he has this little edge to him. He has this little thing that makes me think that um, it might be a while before people recognize what he's got going on. It's kind of the same thing with Randy Newman. You know, like these people who are like technically so proficient, but they've got a little bit of quirk to them. It takes them a while to get um, what they're what what they deserve i think quirky and slippery because randy newman i think what what held him back for the longest time was like what is randy newman's style you know what his style is when he's doing pop songs but it's much harder to pin down what the randy newman sound was as a score composer despite to your point his prodigious prodigious talent yeah but tell me have a different a similar problem it's a good problem to have frankly it's a good problem to have it's not i'm not even sure problem is the right word frankly (laughs) yeah he's doing fine (laughs) He's doing great. He really, he really is. Guy's 41 and he's getting nominated up the yin yang. So he'll be fine. I just want to say one, one thing um, back to, you know, Mick's point about the experience of the film. Um, There's this famous possibly apocryphal story about during the making of Terminator where um, Brad Fidel turns to Cameron and he says like, at this moment, I'm going to hit him with the theme. We're going to, you know, it's going to be this heroic moment where I'm going to bring the theme back. And Cameron says, if you do that, you will remind people that they're watching a movie. I don't want people to know they're watching a movie. I want people on the edge of their seats. And so in filmmaking music, there's this constant like balance that you have to always be mindful of where like, Will the musical thing to do pull people out of the experience of watching the film? Vice versa, will the musical thing to do enhance the the experience of watching the film? I think Don't Look Up has a lot of potential potholes 
where it can pull people out of the film experience, whether it's in the writing or the music or, or the acting or just the, you know, the, the kind of, uh, the, the satire of it all, right? And, and um, I think that this music is grappling with the same thing that everything else in the movie is grappling with, which is, uh, can we tell a story that has a point of view that is satirical, that is that it keeps people in the world, but also allows them to take that little breath away and like reflect on what they're seeing, kind of having your cake and eating it too a little bit. And that's a delicate balance to, to achieve. And so in trying to achieve that balance, do we think Nicholas is programming against the movie? Is he trying to help the film or is he in the same line with those problems yeah. as the film? Because I'm not sure the film is as self-aware as perhaps Nicholas is about how his work contributes. Well, it's funny, you know, composers, there's lots of stories of composers going to directors and telling them, hey, you like, this is the movie you made. Like uh, John Williams went to Spielberg when he saw Jaws and he was like, I know you think you've made a horror movie, but you've made a pirate movie. And uh, Spielberg was like, oh my God, you're right. And so there's this long like line of like, like composers looking at the film and being able to tell what it is. I think that, um, I think that Nicholas Bertel really understands the satire nature, but he also understands through his use of deploying that theme that you played repeatedly, that it needs a kind of um, a thematic, like it just, it needs instances to remind you like uh, of what it is, because if it, w if it was just as all over the place as the movie is, then it, uh, musically, I don't think it would work at all. Well, that'll take us to the second film on our list, Dune, score composed by Hans Zimmer. I had a feeling that was the clip that you were going to choose because that's kind of as close to uh, rhythmically organized musical ideas that you're going to hear in the, in the film. I mean, this, this score is really interesting in the way that it's like, it's, it's very uncanny. Like it's, it, it's both extremely expected and also like there's some moments that are truly wacky in it and i found myself really really loving the moments that i hated and like there's this moment in the film when a like a, a bagpipe comes out of nowhere and i'm like oh that's awful and i'm so glad that it's there because it was like a choice like you know i, I found myself looking for any moment in the score where like a really really like uh strong choice was made. Um, there's a lot of really weaving in and out of sound design in this movie, a lot of pads that that blur the line between kind of environmental sound and and music. There's a few things in, in there that like, there's some vocal textures during the Bene Gesserit sequence that are really cool. 
um, there's that one vocal performance that is hard to ignore. And then there's there's a couple of outstanding like little musical snippets that pop out. I think that the experience of listening to the score was like a three for me out of 10. Watching the movie, it was like a nine. So I really appreciate the fact that the score is integrated almost completely into the experience of feeling it and watching it. And, you know, it's just, you know, I think it's really like blurring the lines between um, what film composing is and filmmaking as a kind of a larger, you know, practice is. So in that sense, I think it's extremely effective. There are parts that I found kind of boring. Um, there are parts that I found like, you know, very thrilling. Overall, it, you just can't disentangle it from the sound design or even the visual uh, language of the film. So in that sense, it's truly different from a lot of the music in this category because um, it just is the film. It's not another layer on top of it. It kind of is just, it, it, is, the, it is the medium of the film itself. You know, when, when this film opens up and the score comes out, the thing I was thinking about, it's like, does every, like, does every movie with, like, set in the desert need, like, Arabic scales? It's like, do we, is that the, can we get farther? Like, does it, isn't that the most obvious choice? Yes. Always. You're totally right. And I think that there's, it's a real, it's a real problem in, kind of the film music world where there's a kind of inability to let go of, of tropes that are tied to kind of a Western centric way of looking at the world. You know, science fiction is a really good way of, it's a good thermometer to tell like how storytellers feel about other places um, because it's a blank canvas that they get to get to paint, basically they get to project what they think about the rest of the world, you know, whether that's on this planet or on another planet. And I think that you're absolutely right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Western centric ideas about what the desert sounds like that are tired, you know? And I think that it's, it's hard to unpack it because it's so tied to the tradition of Hollywood filmmaking, but you're absolutely right. Like it, it requires further examination. And, and, you know, I, I love the Bene Gesserit stuff because we were kind of, there's the kind of whisper singing that was pretty unique. I mean, I hadn't really heard anything like that in a movie and, and, but then you get to some of the more um, expected vocal textures and it's like, okay, you know, this is, there's like basically like a library full of these sounds that, that we've all heard before. Yeah, I, I could see this in like a Transformers movie, like in a montage over the, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But I mean, I, I, when I look at this movie, I say, okay, that, that score that you played Skid, that, that bit of the score is big and epic and awesome and matches the grandeur of the movie, which is 
which is kick ass, just as big as sci-fi gets. And so I think, um, you know, if you want to bring out the big guns, then you get Zimmer. Like I, I, I hark, you, you look back to Blade Runner 2049, which is one of my favorite scores. And it's like such a wild, huge, huge, otherworldly transportative kind of moment. And Louis, I'm, I know that there's probably like so much politics. I know there was so much political stuff going on with the Blade Runner score that I think their evangelist was in it or it was out of i don't know but but regardless you look at the blade runner then you look at interstellar which blade runner feels more ethereal and textural and then you have the kind of to me the iconic interstellar melodic score that is like just brilliant and genius and and memorable and this feels like there are some of those there's some melody but uh, I don't know if just for me as a, as a, as a fan of, of Zimmer and a fan of kind of sci-fi that this score is, is as memorable as those other two scores. And I also think Louis, there's a composer that I'm sure you're aware of um, Daniel Lopatan, who is making kind of oh, one Oh tricks point never is his music project that I'm a, a big fan of. And it's just kind of um, he did the score for good time and uncut gems, this kind of really minimal, one of tricks point never. Yeah. Yeah. One, what, yeah. One of tricks point never. And it's like, uh, I wonder if there's some of this minimalism in some of, in, in the Dune score where you, like you were saying, it's really more, uh, it's more found sounds rather than, uh, pat, uh, chordal sounds. So I don't know. I, I'm just, um, I thought it was cool. Um, but maybe it, it didn't live up to me as some of the other Zimmer scores that I've loved in the past, but that's just my take. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also hard to, um, to a lot of people when they listen to the score, they were like, frankly, I like the original Dune score better. We're talking about the 1984 version. The 1984 version that was scored by Toto. By Toto. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one of the interesting uh, footnotes of the history of the Dune franchise. <laughs> and an interesting tie-in with the rest of movie music that Toto, uh, one of the lead members of Toto is John Williams' son. So, you know, all roads kind of lead back to, to Johnny. Um, <laughs> the king. The, yeah, the king, <laughs> the goat. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, but again, it's like, it, it's, it's this balance of like, do I want to be pulled out of the storytelling? Um, nothing in that score pulled me out of the experience of the movie. And in that sense, I was like gripped by the film. And, you know, I think that it's like, it's worth just noting that there's like lots of different experiences that that film music can engender. And like, I think keeping like to James Cameron's point, like keeping you on the edge of your seat, like that's an end to be explored. So I think it's effective, but yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, in a way, it was extremely, it's extremely um, avant-garde in the fact that it doesn't really present you with any music in the traditional sense to latch on to. And then the other sense is extremely conservative in that it's giving you pretty much what you expect from a textural perspective. Like, this is the sound of the desert. This is the sound of a spaceship. This is the sound, you know? Um, so, you know, I think that in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, kind of similar to or not similar but in the same vein as his 
score for Dunkirk, where it's really about the feeling. Like, what do I, what as the audience member will I walk away feeling? I can't sing the music because it's like uh, the sound of like a shepherd tone, you know, a constantly rising, you know, sound of awfulness. But I felt like the music was helping me really live this experience. So it's hard to say. I mean, I, th- I think that I-, I will say that for Hans Zimmer to be doing this, it is kind of a risk. He's known for pretty traditional thematic ideas, whether it's Batman or uh, something, his earlier work like uh, Gladiator, like he writes a great theme. And so for him to be like, I'm not going to write a theme. I'm just going to give you textures that, that are just as compelling as as a musical theme. I, I do think that that's kind of a, that's a risk for him. I'll just bat clean up here on a few items. Uh, first of all, my hit parade nerds will never forgive me if I don't point out that John Williams' son is Joseph Williams, who joined Toto in 1986 when Toto was in rebuilding mode after they got they bombed with the Dune soundtrack and had trouble following up their blockbuster Toto 4 album, which contained Africa and Rosanna. So Joseph Williams was not with the group in 1984 when they Chris, did Dune. This is exactly what I was talking about. This is the context to keep me in check. <laughs> this is I a appreciate. footnote. This is completely unimportant. No, but, but this is this is myself. like this wholly bombs my whole thesis. This like <laughs> this 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 rips the fabric. I'm not trying to bomb your thesis. I know this rips the fabric of the John Williams overse to shreds. No, yeah. you could argue that the John Williams overse saved Toto and put them back on the charts okay. after they had a terrible scoring experience with David Lynch in 1984. Anyway, well, I just want to- You know, the, to, um, to Mick's point about like the sound of like, so a seminal piece of film scoring and a kind of intersection with new age music is Peter Gabriel's Last Temptation of Christ. I was waiting for somebody to bring it up because boy, oh boy, did this remind me of Last Temptation of yes. Christ. Huge, huge influence on the score and is a huge influence on kind of like the trajectory of ambient music and the trajectory of new age music and kind of like the way that world, quote, world music made its way into ambient uh, recordings. And, you know, I think that uh, there are a lot of people who who are very thoughtful about, about this intersection. It's tough to be thoughtful about this intersection when like you have a film that's kind of also portraying the desert in visually in kind of the same stereotypes that uh, that the music is trying to get away from. So I will say that like, I think that there is there, you can hear the Peter Gabriel score from Last Temptation of Christ in this score pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty, it echoes pretty loudly. Um, and I think that that's a big, uh, that's a, it's a big ancestor to this, this music. I often say in some of my criticism that there are works in pop that are great in and of themselves and can have a terrible influence. For example, Sgt. Pepper by the Beatles, great album, and it led to a bunch of terrible concept albums. Mm. Uh, Steve, Stevie Wonder, one of the greatest singers of all time, and he uses melisma brilliantly, but he trained an entire generation of singers to sing with too much melisma, even though he's brilliant when he does it. Um, Last Temptation of Christ, thinking about what Mick was saying about this kind of arabesque mm-hmm. vibe that Zimmer is, I don't know what the word is, jumping onto here. It may be the the footprints, the fingerprints of that Peter Gabriel album are, you know, 
felt all over the place and it, it casts a long shadow. And maybe this is a case where, I mean, when I was listening to the Dune score, A, I agreed with you. There were, I was not latching onto too many melodies. I loved your little thumbnail of nine in the movie three is a score listening experience. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. I've, and I actually saw Dune twice, not because I'm a Dune head. I've never read the books, but my wife wanted to see it and I wound up seeing it a second time. And I actually liked it even better the second time. Um, but it's, I watched it's it twice a, as well because I was a good like, film. Yeah, I saw it, I saw it I three times. If you watch it the third time at home, you can put subtitles on. So that's also oh, helpful. Can't, can't that was smart. <laughs> that was smart. I'm going to watch it. A yeah. Times. <laughs> Frankly, it's a movie. And that's a digress, but it's a movie that's confusing enough that it's like, I think I like this, but I think I have to see it again because I didn't understand all of it the first time. Yeah. That was yeah. part of it. Yeah. But anyway, I. And the last thing I want to add, because I always go for this kind of, uh, you know, awards betting kind of angle is, you know, Zimmer's an interesting one. He has been nominated 12 times. He's a perennial at the Oscars, but he hasn't won since The Lion King about a quarter century ago. So there's an argument, a Hollywood argument to be made that he's due, but I don't know how, not Dune, or but Dune, D-U-E. Sorry for the bad pun uh, that he that he is overdue, if not overdune. Um, but I'm not sure I see how Dune is the vehicle that gets him his second st- ever statue. You know, Meryl Streep goes through these periods where she's nominated and nominated and nominated. And finally, she won for the Iron Lady because people were like, Psst. by the way, we talk we joke all the time about how often Meryl is nominated, but she hasn't actually won since the early 80s. You know, like eventually, if somebody's nominated enough, you need to give them another statue. Zimmer is a similar one. He's certainly not as quite that level of Meryl Streep in terms of fame or renown, but he's a similar one. He he was nominated uh, for three consecutive Christopher Nolan movies. He's been nominated for, you know, as you pointed out, Gladiator, Thin Red Line. Uh, he pro- I don't know what his Prince of Egypt sounded, uh, score sounded like back in 1998, but I wouldn't be surprised if he used Middle Eastern tropes in that sucker too. You know, it's and, and that's another um, yeah reference to the the Last Temptation of Christ. I mean, the wasn't he nam- nominated last year for Hillbilly Elegy, or was that two years ago? I don't know if he was nominated, but um, but that's uh, the type of thing that Hans he was. Zimmer, he was. Sh- I think he was shortlisted. I don't think he ultimately got nominated. That's my memory. He, he, I have a I have a feeling that if he gets when he gets his next statue, it'll be for something like that, something a little more traditional. Yeah, something a little bit more chamber, something a little more traditional, something where people can be like, oh, that's Hans sitting at the piano playing the melody, as opposed to this score where it's like I have imagine a lot of voters would be like, what is even happening here? You know, like where like where is the music? I mean, really never underestimate that because Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't um, Apollo uh, 13 lose best special effects to Babe? A lot of the voters were thought that a lot of the shots in Apollo 13 were real. I don't know that off the top of my head, but I could completely believe it. The point I would add to your point is that, especially with Zimmer with this Dune score, many Academy voters are only going to hear the score by playing it, you know, on... yeah. Apple Music or Spotify, yeah. rather than hearing it in the context of the film, even if they watch the film, they're going to be like, oh yeah, I got to vote for best score. Did this sound like again? And they are not going to hear song songs. And I, I, I'm I, hard pressed to imagine this is the year where they say, oh, poor Hans, let's give him a statue. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think this is it. I, I could be wrong. 
Well, some of the things you said reminded me of a conversation we had about the sound nominees, because Dune was nominated there as well. And those guys brought up that, and you alluded to it as well in your earlier remarks, about how sound design and score can sometimes blend together. They suggested that there could be some sort of a turf war at times between what the composer brings to it and what they're trying to do on the sound side. And I was curious to get your perspective, all of you, your perspective from this conversation about that debate, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a turf war often in productions that are rushed and in where there's not a lot of coordination um, and not a lot of vision coming from the top about what the music's role is versus what the sound's role is. There's just so many things that music could uh, achieve and there's so many things that sound design could achieve that if there's no direction coming from the boss, um, that both departments will basically try and do what they think is best. And oftentimes that leads to a lot of jockeying for position. You know, I think that I, I feel like I watched a documentary featurette about the making of the sound of this and the making of the sound design for Dune. They said they wanted to make a they wanted it to sound like a documentary of this planet, which I think is really interesting. You know, you listen, when you listen to planet earth, just some of the sound design is such a crucial element. You know, there's no inherent sound of flowers blooming in time-lapse, but the sound that they put to that, that crinkling, that blossoming, that opening really gives you the sense that you're like there next to the flower and you can hear it. It's the same thing with this movie. It's so tactile. It's so um, in your face. It's so granular, you know, both because it's sand, but also just because that's, it's just right there in your ears. I, I think that that's why Hans Zimmer did what he did with the score. It's like, okay, well, the sound design is going to be so close. So in your face, so hyper real that you can't have like a giant orchestra playing runs up and down the, the, the scale, the way that you might in another movie. Let's move on to the third film on our list. Encanto score by Jermaine Franco. <laughs> kick off with just one tidbit and then hand it over to you guys, which is this. Here we have a rare instance, and it's not because of her, where the uh, writer of that score has the number one album in America right now, because Encanto has been number one on the album chart for the last month. Uh, thanks, of course, to all those bangers uh, on the same album by Lin-Manuel Miranda. In a way, you can liken this to what happened to the Titanic score by James Horner in 1998, which rode the Celine Dion song to massive sales and number one on the album chart for the, something like three months, four months. Uh, it was the number one album of 1998. And that album was like 
I don't know, nine tenths score. And yet everybody was buying it for the Celine Dion song, My Heart Will Go On. This is a little different in that there are about, I don't know, seven or eight or 10 Lin-Manuel Miranda songs on Encanto. But the creator of this score uh, is riding those coattails to a number one album right now. So anyway, that's all I wanted to kick this off with. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up Titanic because, you know, earlier, Skid, you talked about the coordination between sound design and music. Another type of coordination, especially in musicals or, you know, uh, you know, music heavy movies that needs to happen is the coordination between composer and songwriter for these original songs. And, and there have been, historically, there have been really um, a lot of friction between the songwriters that are brought in to work on a song and the composers. I'm thinking of Danny Elfman and Prince on Batman. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a really delicate thing. And I think that the balance between songwriting and score in Encanto is, is gorgeous. I think it's just so beautifully executed and it's so balanced and it's so like integrated and, and it's really hard to tell the difference. I mean, really the, the big shift in the movie happens when we switch over from the score to Dos Orguitas, uh, where it really like, it's like, okay, this is a song now. This is not part of the musical. This is like basically like a licensed number, which it isn't, but it feels like a needle drop as opposed to a piece of score. I felt like the music in this movie was fantastic. Really top-notch executed Disney movie. Um, where like the action sequences felt compelling, really great action music. The environmental music, kind of like the interstitial stuff to get you from scene to scene was really cool. The, the rhythmic elements um, were integrated in with the kind of the, the pop numbers, uh, the songs. I just felt like it was just really thoughtful, like from front to back, they really figured it out. And I just think it's like kind of old school in that sense where it's a musical number kind of of the uh, Bernstein era where it's just like, you know, or the the Mencken um, tradition of the Disney stuff where you just you just think music first and you kind of are basically making a, a little um, opera or operetta or, or uh, it's musical theater. And I think it's it's really done super well in this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. There's just a high skill level for uh, the various genres of Latin music that are performed, the instrumentation, the production, that they're they're hitting on all cylinders for sure. It felt like a yeah, felt like a, a cool Disney movie. The, the the this movie felt weird to me, but the the music, it's really like a you're watching a a, a Lin Manuel cartoon. It's like, it's very, the, the house is a set, you know, I, I felt like it's a, a little claustrophobic and you have this house that is like this set and all these things are happening, but it did feel like what you said, Louis, it feels like musical theater. And I think that's what, I mean, that's, that's what you lean into. If, if you're, if you're, if you're going to have a Lin-Manuel Disney movie, then go all out. And I feel like uh, they really achieved just all just the transitions from like you said the musical numbers to uh the score was just full of energy full of life creativity uh beautiful melodies i mean it 
kids there there's a reason why this is and i and you know what it's nice to listen to the score with the musical numbers like you throw that on you throw that on random on spotify and you're like oh this is really uh it's a good listen unlike yeah. like you said like dune where it's it's harder to really kind of like enjoy that listening experience and canto is probably number one for a reason that people are going to come back and people know that they can put this on and their kids can listen to it and it can also be really awesome background music with the cool transitional music so um yeah they did it they nailed it and so uh i, I wouldn't be surprised if this won but chris i don't know the history of the composer and how disney tunes do so i don't you know yeah we haven't talked much about the actual composer of this music, but her name is Jermaine Franco. Uh, I understand she is the first Latina to join the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Um, she is the first woman, I believe, to score a Disney movie. Um, this is not her first. I think she also did Coco, uh, which she did not win for, but um, uh, I believe that uh, that won quite a bit of acclaim. And she's really laddering up. She's getting better and better uh, work all the time. Um, she was on, you know, a Dora movie, Dora and the Lost City of Gold a couple of years ago. Um, so she's starting to score some higher grossing films. And I do think her Latin background matters here. Uh, of course. Because she's, she's fluent. She proved it in Coco and she's proving it again here on Encanto, that she's fluent in these tropes. The same tricks that Lin-Manuel himself as a Puerto Rican was trying to channel Colombian music, which is not native to his culture, but he had the fluency to make it work on a track like Dos Oruguitas. Similarly, uh, Jermaine Franco is, uh, you know, using her heritage um, and, you know, kind of producing this wide ranging yet of a piece thematic, uh, you know, score that uh, is just uh, to echo both your points is, is remarkably coherent and a, and a great listen just just like Mick said, it, it's it's actually really pleasurable to listen to. Um, you know, it's if if I were a betting man, this is the moment in this where I say, well, you could be cynical and say this is going to win because it's a hit, and it's a hit because of the Lin Manuel Miranda songs, and therefore this unrelated score is going to win. Except it kind of deserves it, um, and it may win on its own merits because it is such a coherent score that works so well with the song songs, the musical songs, the, the Broadway-esque songs that Miranda has produced. Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out that, uh, you know, film scoring, the profession, the, the, the industry is so predominantly white and so predominantly male. Here, here. It's one of the whitest and most male-dominated um, sectors of the entertainment industry, if not the most. And so it, it is truly just a, a absolutely necessary thing for uh, composers of color and, and composer women composers and and non-binary composers to be lifted up this way. I will say one of the things that's really messed up about this year's Oscars is that they will not be televising a number of things. One of them is the best original score ceremony. They won't be awarding those trophies uh, on air. Um, and this is a big problem because uh, like the music is so integral to all of these movies, but especially in Canto where it's like, if this film wins, like they should get their moment in the sun. 
I'll, I'll refine your point just in this one small way. What they're doing is they're going to reward them off camera, then edit them down and show them on camera, but much more briefly. So they're going to eliminate the walk up to the podium. They're going to eliminate, they're probably going to reduce the speech to some extent. So it's going to be, you will, these people That's will fine. be quote unquote awarded on camera, but on tape, as opposed to best actor, best actress, et cetera, where people are going to see the, the whole kit and caboodle. I'm glad to hear that they are going to get some airtime. I think my, my, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I, I look at the way that the- Oh, you're not alone. There's been a lot of complaint in the Academy about this. I mean, yeah, you, I mean I your, your point is still well taken. No, I, I appreciate it. I mean, it, it strikes me, you know, and this is something also that, that music, I worry about this score being taken for granted because it is so, it's like water. It, you know, the David Foster Wallace thing. It's so, it's, it pervades the entire- idea of the film that it might be easy to kind of in a way forget that it's there and a lot of uh times where people notice the music is when there's long stretches of no music and then the music comes up for a key moment and then goes away from a from a perception perspective like that's how people most people like oh that music was great but when it's constantly going through i think a lot of people tend to take it for granted it's like uh, it's like amniotic fluid for the the movie. It's like you're, it is, you're and bathing, really, it's, it's you're bathing substrate. in it, and and you don't notice it. Yeah, it is truly like the the substrate through which the entire like story is told. And so, I just uh, I, I, my one fear for this movie not getting the, the acclaim that it's due is that it it's it is possible for people to miss that entirely. Um, you know, uh, so. I would also say it's, I think it's really funny going from Dune to, to this movie where one of the things that I love about musicals is just the economy of storytelling where literally the exposition is given to you in just the like tidiest little packages of like, okay, here's everything you need to know about this movie in three minutes. And it's done in a song. It's like, here's, here's the family magical. Like, here's everything you need to know, which like would have taken the movie like, 30 minutes to explain if it wasn't in a song form. And Dune is like the perfect example where it's like, there is so much exposition to dump here that you need to watch the movie three times. And Encanto is like, eh, let's just do it in a song. And uh, I just, I think that that's great. And I, from a sort of uh, viewer's perspective, I really like the fact that I got everything I needed to know in, in a sh very short amount of time. My last intersectional footnote will be that if Jermaine uh, uh, Franco wins this prize, uh, she will have won just two years after Hilda Gunnedotter, I'm sure I'm pronouncing her last name incorrectly, who won for Joker uh, mm -hmm. for the 2019 Oscar year in 2020, uh, making her the first solo woman composer to win this prize. Jermaine uh, Franco would be the second, uh, I believe. And uh, I don't think she's going to take this prize with anybody else, so she'll be the second. And uh, that would be a great moment. And let's hope that it is at least acknowledged on camera, even if they're taping it during the commercial break. Yeah, totally. Well, the fourth film on our list is Parallel Mothers, score composed by Alberto Iglesias.
Oh, this it's so good. <laughs> the score is so good. Uh, I I have such a soft spot for this music because, like, on just on a personal level, every decision that was made, it's like felt like the right one. Composing kind of boils down to what note do you play next? Like, there's a lot of different ways that you can make that decision and people study their whole lives to figure out like, okay, well, I've just played this note now, now what? And, you know, tons of ink has been spilled on, on theoretical approaches to it, but every decision that's made in this is like every note is better than the last one. Um, and I personally feel like it's also connected with a tradition of film music that I is my favorite, which is a kind of Bernard Herman Mancini, uh, harmony. It's very, uh, has one foot in a kind of um, 20th century uh, romantic impressionistic world and another foot in a kind of um, jazz, uh, you know, kind of avant-garde world. And I, this is the music that I personally like, like the most. I felt like it was incredibly effective and very emotional and also very gripping. Like I, it, it like recorded beautifully and like a smaller ensemble. So like that's, it's always a challenge to make that sound the way you want to. This score reminds me of one of my favorite scores that Alberto Iglesias made um, over a decade ago, which was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy like for my money, like one of the best pieces of film music ever made. Um, and it sounds very different, but you can tell that it's the same aesthetic, that the same kind of um, subtle kind of slow build patience crafted that music. Uh, I just really appreciated the restraint and the kind of maturity that this music had. And I, I just like could listen to this all day long. You feel like watching this movie with Almodovar, uh, you are you are in good hands, and all the choices you know with 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 Cruz and and him that the chemistry that they have, and the selection of these pieces to kind of set the emotional table are just like so effective and just and just uh, elevate the movie um, so much. I think. They're, they're very kind of gloomy. Um, the movie's so heavy that I think that they really, what you said, Louis, that I agree, they are a little bit avant-garde. They're not so melodic that they take you out of the emotional moment, but they're so moody and so closely and, and the, the, the ensemble so small that you can really hear the string. You can really feel the... Um, feel the performance. And so it's just the right amount of drama, which I feel like Almodovar is always, it's just the right amount. And he's just building the tension and building the tension. And it's the same with the, with the score. And it's just so effective and, and you're left just satisfied. You're like, okay, this is awesome. Like I'm, I'm, you know, this is, this is a big time director with a big time composer doing high level work and would not be surprised if it won i don't i don't know but um but it's uh yeah i thought it was i thought it was awesome i co-signed a lot of what mick just said uh especially when he said the word drama because to me what makes the score so compelling 
is this weird, almost paradoxical balance between intimacy and melodrama. It's like it's got both bigness and smallness at the same time, which is just really hard to pull off. But you're in the hands of a real master here with Alberto Iglesias. This, by the way, is something like, I think he's worked with Almodovar something like 12 or 13 times since the mid-90s. And Mick just made a good point, bringing up Penelope Cruz, the actress's name. Almodovar likes to work with people he's comfortable with. He creates almost a little world like a Paul Thomas Anderson does, where he keeps coming back to the same actors, the same collaborators, um, and you know, or uh, Wes Anderson, frankly, you know, mm-hmm. building a little world and then rebuilding that world over and over again. And yet the films are all very different thematically, very different plot wise, et cetera. Much as Almodovar has gone from madcap farce in his early 80s films, like, you know, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown to something like Parallel Mothers, which has little elements of farce and satire in it, but is mostly, to your point, quite heavy. It's really Iglesias's rise along with Almodovar runs parallel to that. Yet you can't just pigeonhole him as an Almodovar guy because, you know, to Louis's point, he did Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy for Thomas Alfredson uh, a decade ago. He's worked with Ridley Scott. He's worked with uh, Steven Soderbergh, Mark Forster. He's worked with a bunch of different directors. He must be a guy like Nicholas Bertel, who's just a pleasure to work with and totally gets it. And I think this is something like his third or fourth nomination. This is yet another guy in this category who's probably due for a prize and has never won. The one thing I think I disagree with Mick about is I would be quite surprised if he won because, you know, it's great that Parallel Mothers is in the conversation prize-wise this year. I I see the glasses half full there, but I'd be pleasantly surprised if he won. because I have a feeling that if Iglesias is ever going to win, either Almodovar is going to have to have a, a movie that really breaks out, or he's going to have to work with one of those Ridley Scott, you know, sort of level of director who's going to get him the big prize. But if this wins, man, I'd be thrilled because it's such a beautiful piece of score. I, I was thinking, Mick, to your point, to me, that sense of, of drama is really comes from a, a, a very deep understanding of film music, like the harmony of film music that kind of is the ancestor to, to this type of drama, which is Bernard Herrmann, I think, where Bernard Herrmann's music was a big shift in terms of taking drama and expressing it musically as an external thing to making it a psychological internal thing. And a lot of the music that Bernard Herrmann made, especially for, for Hitchcock, it kind of was like, okay, th- there's, a, there's a kind of thunderstorm happening within the minds of these characters rather than externally outside of them. And, you know, there's certain chords that Iglesias uses that like are just like, it, it, it is such a clear and smart interpretation of that tradition. Juxtapose that with something like Mank, which was a pastiche of the soundscape, which is like, okay, this is what, uh, we're gonna do our best Bernard Herman doing Citizen Kane, right? And we're just, we're gonna, we're gonna have, we're just gonna have fun with this and we're gonna see what we can do in, in 2020 or 2021, whichever. And we're, it won't be fun because we're uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and no one will expect it. And I think they did a good job, but like this score is a true like internalization and interpretation. A descendant a descendant of and a personalization of Herman in a way that feels 
like it was metabolized, it was personalized, it was stylized through the experience of Iglesias. And like, we get, we reap the rewards of that. Like, I really feel like it, it's a very, like musically, it's just so good. And I'm skeptical that <laughs> the Academy is like aware enough of like the, 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 the ways that this music is connected with the past traditions of movie making to like, to award it the prize, but I, I hope so. I mean, I'm always looking for people who I can tell what their musical diet is, but they output something different. You know, I can tell that this score was raised on a steady diet of Herman and Mancini and maybe some Debussy and then, you know, some, there's even some like Mozart and Beethoven kind of stuff in the more dramatic sections. And then what came out was something deeply personal and specific to the film, as opposed to, oh, they just like replated the food that they that that they were served in a different arrangement. Yeah, that's that's my belabored metaphor. I was just gonna compliment you. I think it's a great metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll take us to the fifth film on our list, The Power of the Dog, score composed by Johnny Greenwood. I mean, it's gorgeous, gorgeous music. I am really torn about this because I find the music to be very beautiful, very compelling, very like, in a way, very different from John Greenwood's other stuff. Probably more like a Tom York, Johnny Greenwood collaboration in, in its ability to access pop music. A lot of the changes that are in these in these chord progressions are much more pop oriented than something like there will be blood. And I think we're going to probably draw a lot of comparisons to there will be blood over the course of this conversation. It's probably only, only natural, but I'm torn because part of me feels like this is just so good. And it's so great that we get this music because it's cool. And it's from a very unique perspective. The other part of me feels like he did work this year that was cooler. And so I'm trying to place this in within Johnny Greenwood's catalog and also within the kind of larger landscape of the nominees. I'm ambivalent about it. I assume you're talking about his uh, score for Spencer. Was that the one that, that wowed you? Spencer was like, it was, uh, it's so out there, but it is so cool. And I've really never heard of a film score quite like it. Mm. I found... Uh... Yeah, you, you know, you, I, I listened back to There Will Be Blood and I feel like there are some really recognizable moments in that movie. And I feel like these movies aren't so different in kind of emotional uh, weight where you have these really strong, gnarly, kind of deviant, bad characters. And Johnny, you know, in 2015 or whenever, whenever There Will Be Blood or whenever like you're 2008, five or eight or seven, I don't know, whenever it came out, um, He's building this world and building this tension 
and it was less melodic and very percussive and um uh it was felt more like a soundscape than than focus on a melody where you have this movie now that there are so many melodic moments but i feel like the playing and the instrumentation really conveys the emptiness of the of the of the landscape though i felt i felt i loved the simple kind of simple pads it propelled i felt like the space you know the wyoming space was so big and it just kind of propelled this kind of uh sinister minory kind of darkness throughout the movie and it it really added to the experience for me and i think you know i've been a fan of radiohead my whole life so it's like it's nice to hear these guitar parts that would that would show up on a radiohead album at some point like some of some of the guitar parts on the on the power of the dog sound like you could write a tune to them oh and, and tom york could sing on top of them and it'd be a really cool song you know so i think that there's a familiarity there but i also feel like he served the movie well and there's just this kind of coldness that is reflective of the of the scene of of, of the emotional kind of vacuum that 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 the lead character that benedict cumberbatch it's just kind of dark and foreboding and that's what that's what the Radiohead does well. He's been doing he's been doing dark and foreboding for thirty years. So like he's you know I, I feel like I really enjoyed it. It's a nice listen. It's a nice listen uh, without just you know if listening in a, in a playlist. Uh, I, I I you know what I, I I saw Spencer, and I wasn't super super hot on the on the film, and I didn't quite I I, I wasn't listening closely enough to kind of dial in the score. So I have to revisit it. Louis, so I can kind of compare his approach to this one and, and Spencer. Oh, it's it's like night and day. I mean, the thing, part of my thing about Johnny Greenwood is that, you know, I think he's such a, he's like an atom bomb. Like he has like the most powerful weapon in your arsenal. And I felt like this movie like didn't really use him. It's certainly not the way that he was used in there will be blood and definitely not the way that he was used in phantom thread which is my favorite of his works and i just i feel like you have this this monster like unleash him you know and i i felt like i was just waiting for like okay when is this like when are we gonna like see some something like some fireworks here not that not that it, the movie necessarily called for that, but I just felt like um, my feeling about what Johnny Greenwood's genius is his ability to take very out there musical traditions and present them in ways that give a lot of listeners a door in. And I think um, uh, There Will Be Blood is the best example of that. He took some really crazy traditions from avant-garde uh, performance music. And he, he put them in this, this new context that just created this whole new interpretation. And I, I, I feel like a lot of the music in The Power of the Dog felt like it could have been written without the movie in mind. And it could have just been a really, really well-placed needle drop from a music supervisor. And that's, you know, I think I'm being like super hard on it because Johnny Greenwood scores are probably some of my favorites, 
but I, I felt like, uh, like to your point, I would love to hear what this Radiohead album would sound like. Well, maybe Johnny Greenwood just had a busy year and uh, he had to rush this one because uh, in addition to Spencer, doesn't he have a credit on Licorice Pizza as well? He didn't do a full score for it, but I think he was the music supervisor or something for that one, which makes sense because of course we keep dancing around this name and mentioning all of his movies. Paul Thomas Anderson is effectively the reason Johnny Greenwood is a film scorer because it's PTA who brought him in on There Will Be Blood and gave him the second career. And, you know, he's proved all the more versatile. And I see a scenario, frankly, where, you know, given the coattails of Power of the Dog, which is looking like a front runner this year, where this wins. And Johnny Greenwood, after years of great score work, finally takes the statue. He's got a Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross-like backstory in terms of his transition from, you know, alternative rock to scoring. He, like Ross and Reznor, he's proved multifarious. Um, he could have been nominated for two things last year, same as Ross and, and uh, Reznor were last year. Um, he's kind of owed, because uh, he, he's turned in so much good work on Phantom Thread, on There Will Be Blood. It also speaks to the fact, something I say in this series all the time, the meta-narrative matters. And frankly, Spencer turned out to be a tough sell to the Academy. Like Mick, I had mixed feelings about the movie. Uh, I liked it better than Jackie, but not drastically more. And I, there was even talk that as richly deserving as she was, uh, Kristen Stewart was possibly not gonna get her best actress nomination because people were so chilly to the movie. And so if they were chilly to Pablo Lorraine's movie, it stands to reason that Johnny Greenwood is in for this score, not for Spencer. I also think that Spencer is just too weird. The music is not accessible enough. This is part of the reason why I am so like super championing it is because I think that we need people out there like the Johnny Greenwoods making very weird stuff because the gravitational pull of boring is so strong in Hollywood that we need people like really pushing the outer limits. So, but I agree with you. I don't think it, I don't think Spencer stood a chance, you know? Well, maybe if you average the Spencer score and the power of the dog score, you kind of get the perfect Johnny Greenwood score. You get the Phantom Thread. You get Phantom Thread, which is like both avant-garde and yet more accessible at the same time. Yeah. I don't know. But um, if power of the dog starts sweeping this year, which it's not guaranteed to do, it's still a, a bit of an oddball movie. And yet it's got the most nominations this year, uh, including some depth in the acting categories that people didn't see coming and things like that. I see a, I see a scenario where Greenwood takes it. To me, in my mind, if I were a betting man, it's between that or uh, Jermaine for Encanto. Um, those to me seem like the front runners. But then again, with Zimmer in the mix, with you know Iglesias in the mix, um, even with Bertel in the mix, you've got several people who are owed a statue this year. And I'm the the newcomer is is uh, Jermaine for for Encanto, and she stands an excellent chance of taking it. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. upsetting all, all of these people who've been nominated multiple times. So uh, it's going to be an interesting win, whoever takes it. I think it's a really strong batch this year. All the scores are very interesting in their own right. And they kind of represent a pretty wide array of approaches too. I'd say like from a technical perspective. So I, yeah, it, it, it Will be very interesting yeah see. chris when we when we were at break louis and i were saying that the scores are probably a little cooler than the tunes this year yeah 
Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. You know, well, and just, just the sheer breadth in the category. I mean, hearing Louis break down what's going on in each of these scores, which is always interesting to me. It's one of the reasons I love doing this conversation every year. You really have such a multifarious variety of approaches all represented in the same category. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've got a musical, you've got an ambient score, you've got a kind of um, what I would say a very contemporary eclectic approach with Don't Look Up. You've got a classical full Western and you've got um, a kind of film noir, basically. Like in Parallel Mothers. In Parallel Mothers. I'd say film noir in this like, you know, harmonically, not, not in terms of ensemble, but um, that's like the five completely different films. Like none of them really stand on each other's toes, you know? Yeah. So it'll be fun to see who, you know, takes it. And talking about films that didn't receive the nomination, Lou, you talked about Spencer and how impressed you were by that. Are there other scores that caught your ear from 2021? Uh, it's not a film. Um, it was a series. And so it's like kind of, it's not super germane to this conversation, but I thought that the score for White Lotus, which was uh, incredible. And is Cristobal Tapia de Vere, uh, who composed this, I probably like my most listened to piece of music last year. I had that record on repeat. I think it's so cool. I think it's so interesting. And um, he's a name to watch for the next coming year. I also think that Chris Bowers is another you know name to watch for the next year. Chris Bowers, known for uh, Green Book, most recently did King Richard. Um, I think that he has done a couple of shorts in the last year that I thought were fantastic. The latest one was called A Vandal and that's that recently came out, so it's not eligible, but Chris Bowers probably going to be the next big thing if I were to put money on it. The only other one that leapt to mind for me because I think it was shortlisted and then didn't get in. And in fact, this movie was blanked across the Oscars this year was um, uh, the Wes Anderson film and Alexandre de Pla, uh, The French Dispatch. Uh, a lot of people cited that as an impressive score. De Pla has won with Anderson before. He won for Grand Budapest Hotel. So he doesn't need an award. He's, he's actually won a couple of times. But um, I remember thinking while watching that film that the score was uh, interesting and exceptional. I agree. I remember that. That was a fun movie. The first, the first third, there's like, it's in thirds. The first third just was quintessential Wes Anderson awesomeness. I just loved it. And yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if I had this, you know, we talked about all the qualities that each of the films represented musically in this category. I will say that the kind of disclop, um, Danny Elfman, um, <laughs> Newton Howard, like all of that, that kind of journeyman, like a uh, contemporary craftsman, like film score guy <laughs> sound and not to belittle it, but I think that there's definitely a, like uh, you work within the studio system. Uh, your genre is contemporary film music that is not represented at all in these cat in this category. I think it's interesting this year that, that the scores this year, rather than the display, which I think is quintessential film music, in that it kind of is sounds contemporary and it mixes a lot of genres and it's very um, it's very quasi classical. That is not really present 
in this year's nominees. Right. Arguably the closest, the closest thing you have to that is Zimmer and Zimmer's not doing that this year. Exactly. Zimmer would be the person who would pick up the mantle, but this year he's zigged instead of zagged. And, and <laughs> so you have a, a big hole in the He's zimmed instead of zagged. He, he zimmed. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. Sorry. Um, I think that you know, there's a big hole in the category and it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's interesting. Every year I feel like you typically have one of the, a sound that sounds like, you know, I think last year it was news of the world or, you know, you have a score like that where it just sounds the way a big studio picture should sound. Um, don't really have that this year. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I think it's always interesting to have you guys talk about this. Very educational. Take care. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, thanks for too. having us. Listeners, that's another wrap. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit our website, oloneoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. It's easy to peruse past episodes, and you'll find links to all of our social media. That includes our page on IMDb, where you can learn more about my guests. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and all of you for sticking with us. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends. Two more Oscar episodes next week. Thanks again for listening from Below the Line.